0: Alrighty you guys, let's get back to our seats, back to reality. So as I said, we are today finishing our long series on the book of Exodus, and uh, I'll be very honest, I'm like pretty sad about this one. I, uh... I've enjoyed this um, a lot, and I've learned a lot, and I've, uh, it's funny how you can know a story but not know it, you know what I mean, or something like that, and this has really been potent, I'll just say that. We, what we're doing today, though, is another one of those, you know, some of these chapter things. some of these chapters, or some of these sections, we've broken it down, um, where it's like we're doing this chapter by itself, like Exodus 1, 2, and then we did some that were like two or three together, and then there's been two today and another day that are like a really stupidly long amount of chapters at once, meaning what we're talking about today is Exodus 33 to 40, and you're like, how can you possibly cover that in any sort of meaningful way? We can, but we're not going to cover everything, so my advice would be take note, Exodus 33 to 40, and you have a Bible, so read it. Um, and we'll get into um, what this is going to be. It's the conclusion of the story of the book of Exodus. It's not the conclusion of the story of the Bible. But because there's a lot, I'm going to have Andy come up. I've talked to him already. This, I'm gonna ha- we're going to read two whole chapters in a little chunk in the middle. And what I'm going to do is we're going to kind of uh, intentionally broad brush this thing so that you can see the theme that we need to see for today. It's two points that we need to see for today which should dovetail into like I said, you know the story, you know pieces of this, and if you don't know anything, I'll bring you up to speed, but we need to take away from this two main things today that are important. And but but I'm going to have Andy read all of chapter 33, a chunk from chapter 34, and then all of chapter 40, which sounds like a lot. It is um <laughs> but I want you to listen and hear This, just without any context, or without any uh, uh, commentary, I just want you to read it. And so, if you want to follow along, we'll have it on the screens, or just turn to Exodus 33, the word of the Lord.
1: Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you. And drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, "'Tell the Israelites, "'You are a stiff-necked people. "'If I were to go with you, even for a moment, "'I might destroy you. "'Now take off your ornaments, "'and I will decide what to do with you.'" So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the Tent of Meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the Tent of Meeting outside the camp, and whenever Moses went out to the tent, All the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went to the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, tell me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people." And the Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Exodus 34:29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the covenant of law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what had been communicated, uh, what had been commanded, they said that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Exodus 40. Then the Lord said to Moses, Set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. Place the Ark of the Covenant in it and shield the Ark with the curtain. Bring in the table and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. "'Place the gold altar of incense in front of the Ark of the Covenant Law "'and put the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. "'Place the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, "'the tent of meeting. "'Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. "'Set up the courtyard around it and put the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. "'Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. "'Consecrate it and all its furnishings, and it will be holy.'" Then anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all its utensils. Consecrate the altar, and it will be most holy. Anoint the basin, and its stands, and consecrate them. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments. Anoint him and consecrate him, so he may serve me as priest. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics. Anoint them just as you have anointed their father, so they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be a priesthood that will continue throughout their generations. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, and set the posts. He then spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded him. He took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark, attached the poles to the ark, and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the covenant law as the, as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the curtain, and set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense upon it as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, and Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. So Moses... Finished the work, the glory of the Lord. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels.
0: Amen. Thank you, Andy, for reading all of that. I want to make two brief points, I believe. They are brief, but they're important. This is the end of the story of Exodus, and if you remember when we started this, I told you that this book starts and stops at a certain place. It focuses a certain way. And we know more details about what happened in this time frame and even what happens next because there's other books in the Bible. And these are important things. This is not to, to say those things are less important. We've even referenced them, like some of the things that happened are accounted for in numbers as well and stuff like that that Kevin and I talked about. But Exodus is a story. And it's written as a story to be encountered as a story and learned from as a story. And we just read the end of it. And I want to, one last time, invite you to see yourself within this story. And then we can pull from it some very important things, two main important things for our lives as Jesus followers in the 21st century. Um, I will give a quick recap. I don't have any notes for this, but just in case you say, I don't know what an exodus is, or even if you have been here, it's good for us to go back really quick to see the story points just in in its entirety. So God creates the world in Genesis. He creates man. Man chooses sin over God. We screw everything up. God's like, don't worry, I'm going to fix this. Some other things happen. And eventually God finds the man Abram, who he says, you're the person that through your descendants, I'm going to restore the entire world through, through a process to what I want it to be, which ultimately leads all the way to Jesus and then following through to us. But for now, he says, Abraham, Abraham's sons, they have some things that happen, and then some descendants down the line. One of the, the brothers are jealous of another brother. They sell him into slavery in Egypt, and he ends up there. God elevates him. He's in charge of the place, basically. There's Pharaoh and him. They take care of They save everybody through a famine he reconnects with his brothers they all come down and several hundred years pass and they become slaves they forget joseph and all this stuff and they're slaves in egypt to the point that some of them maybe even have forgotten that god had made these promises they start calling out this isn't right we're living in slavery the pharaoh's scared of them because they might take over there's so many of them this kind of thing god keeps blessing them even though he keeps trying to stop it and moses so Pharaoh's like, well, let's kill all the boys because they'll rise up against us maybe. So he tries to, but Moses' wa- mom saves Moses and puts him, and then Pharaoh's own daughter finds him as a baby. And he says, I'm going to raise him as my own son. And so you have this this Hebrew uh, descendant of Abraham who's now raised up in Pharaoh's household, but he still knows who he is. He's kind of like stuck between two worlds, and then he sees an uh, Egyptian person mistreating a Hebrew person. He's like, that's not right. So he just takes matters in his own hands and kills the guy. And then has to run away because they're trying to kill him, and then he's away for 40 years. He meets a, a, a woman, they get married, and he's, you know, but he's still bothered about this fact that his people are enslaved down in Egypt somewhere, and he encounters God in a burning bush, and God says, you're the guy that I'm going to go send to deal with that, and he's like, what, What? you know, what are you talking about? And then this whole story unfolds of how he goes and challenges Pharaoh and God's reveals his plan and he's challenging the egyptian gods and all sorts of stuff through plagues and then ultimately to the most important plague which creates the actual exodus event which is the night of passover which was just marked by the feast of passover which was when they when god said i'm going to kill the firstborn of every person family animal anything unless you've applied the blood of a lamb to your doorpost that will be a sign to me for to pass over this household, and the Hebrews do it, the Egyptians don't, and the death of Pharaoh's own son finally gets, he says, okay, I'll let you go. The Hebrews finally leave to celebrate, to go back towards their homeland that God has promised, and Pharaoh decides I made a mistake, and he chases after them. So now the Hebrew people are backed up against the, the sea and an army, which they're not prepared to fight. So that's worse maybe than the situation they were in, and they... God calls out to Moses say, hey, we have an impossible situation. God's like, I, I can handle this. So he opens the water for them to walk through, which wasn't a solution on the solutions list. But when God's involved, <laughs> other solutions make themselves available. And God causes the water to fall back on the Egyptians, and the Hebrew people are set free. But now they're in the wilderness with God, and then they, had, they don't have food, so they complain about food, and they don't have water. And then Moses has all these interactions with God, but then they lead up to this mountain where God has said, I will meet you here again. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And then Moses goes up. He's meeting with God. And God's telling him all these things about, here's the covenant. He gives him like the Ten Commandments. Remember, we talked about this. He gives them, here's how I want you as my people to live with me. Meanwhile, back in the camp, everybody's like, I guess Moses is gone. We should probably make a different God. And they take all the stuff and make an idol and decide to worship it as the one who actually saved them, which wasn't true. And God gets very upset about that and deals with it. And Moses now has to go back to God and say, hey, what now? That's where we are. And that's why we started this today where, Moses, where God says to Moses, look, y'all go ahead. I'll send you to the, to the place I told you we were going. Y'all go ahead, but I'm not going because if I go, I'm going to kill you guys. And Moses has this interaction that we just read. And in the following chapter 34 as well, apologizing for what they've done and God says, I will, in fact, go with you to, through the wilderness to the promised land. <clears throat> and then he gives them a lot of instruction. This is the part that we kind of skipped over a lot. It's like the detailed instructions of what I want you to make, Moses, so that my presence, God's presence, can now go with you in your life. And if you remember, the one reason I'm skipping over a lot of those details is because Stephen Miran taught about this during our worship series about 18 months ago, and they actually had, like, versions of these things. You may remember there was curtains, and they had the big uh, menorah and everything. And so some of that you can recall. And then God gives them the instructions, and they do all of that. And then the very end of the story, which Andy just read, is the Hebrew people in the wilderness with the presence of God, the end. And like I said, that's not the end of the story, but it's the end of this story. That's very important because this is the main point one. There's two main points. This is main point one. God with us in the wilderness is the way that you and I will describe our lives until we die or Jesus returns. That's the description of our lives. We are headed somewhere, just as they were headed somewhere. We are not there yet, but God is with us. Where do we live? The wilderness. Who's with us? God. Does that matter? (laughs) Extremely. So I want to talk about that first. Um, We're going to be talking about knowing God, being with God. God's presence, these are all like, I, wanna, I want you to start thinking, and it's hard for us sometimes as Western, you know, very rationally thinking people. <laughs> we think we're rational. Uh, we'll actually find this to be quite, uh, quite refreshing and healthy, is that God, the, the, you'll find throughout the Bible a lot of what I would call relational language. When God's describing his uh, relationship with us um, very often, there are technicalities. So, yes, the rational part of your mind can be fine. And, yes, I did use the word law just a few minutes ago. This is all fine. This is all good. God has laws. He has rules. He has things he wants you to do. We just read about 17 times Moses did as God commanded him. So, like, you, I'm not saying that's not there. It is there. But when God's talking about relating to us, there's, we shift from kind of technical language or something like that or legal language mostly into relational language. You talk about, like, loving God, okay, or, you know, uh, good father we're just saying you know father is a relationship you know what i mean i have a father and other people that i know aren't my father you see what i'm saying there's a relationship there that what i'm meaning is the the it's not just knowing about something like i could tell you um this is a mic stand um but if it's not hold if there's a relate the relationship is defining uh I didn't plan to explain this the way I am now, so forget the mic stand thing. The, uh, <laughs> if I tell you about this man who's my dad, you could know all about him, right? I could know all about him. You might even know more. You might have known him longer than I have, but you, he's not your dad. That's defining a relationship. Do you see what I'm saying? And so we need to start to see some of that in how we can interact with this text. Because, because, I want to not only just because this is this is where we are with God in the wilderness that defines the whole ballgame of our lives So you need to hold on to that I am with God in the wilderness and that's it and that's all you need and everything's gonna be fine but I wanna address maybe part of how we think about that um, with God or Skip most of this. I think a lot of times we think of the world like this. I'm alive now, and there's a bad place where you go when you die, and a good place to go when you die. And if I'm good enough, like the non-Christian version would be like, if I'm good enough, then maybe I'll go to the good place when I die, and that'll be great. Or the Christian version might be the bad Christian version, might be something like there's a bad place to go when you die and a good place to go when you die. And if I pray to Jesus, and he'll, then I'll go to the good place, and that'll be great. And be like, well, in, a technical, like in the most basic sense, yeah, that's kind of true. However, that's not accurately describing anything and could be misstating a whole lot. Okay? I'll prove it. In this first chapter, God says to <laughs> the Hebrews, go ahead to the good place. But I'm not going there with you. And they don't go, sweet, at the good place. We don't have to deal with God killing everybody or anything. I mean, like, you know, we get the good place. He said go. He'll send an angel. We get an angel to take us to the good place, and we don't have to deal with the God anymore. Like, does anybody respond like that? No, they don't. What I'm trying to say to you is the good place or heaven. You know what I'm talking about. Heaven and the expression heaven this, the, and being with God are two different ways of talking about the same thing. They are not distinguishable in any meaningful way. There is no such thing as heaven, which if you want to get very technical biblically, maybe heaven would be defined as God's space, you know? So there's no such thing as God's space apart from being with God. They are the same thing. So there's no good place that, you know, your friend Jesus gives you like in the back door to get to. You see what I'm saying? Being with him is the good place. There's no thing other than that. So the relationship is important into understanding The whole place. So in a sense, the Hebrew people finding themselves in the wilderness just like us with God have something that looks like heaven on earth. And you actually see that because God immediately says, all right, right, okay, good. I'll go with you. So here's some instructions. Build all of this stuff. And it's very specific to the point. He's like, I want these exact guys to do it. Do it exactly this way. Everything's exactly this size. Do all of these things. And Steve and Marianne went through. There's a lot of symbolism in all of this, which does ultimately lead through and prefigure what Jesus does, you know, and then takes us all the way through to like even things in Revelation. Like it's, Hebrews says that this is a pattern, a pattern of things that are in heaven. So he's laying out, you know, all sorts of, and he's like extremely serious about it. Technical, serious, all of this sort of thing, because he wants his presence to go with him in the wilderness, and it's a picture of heaven on earth. And this is um, exactly where we find ourselves. But the weirder thing is, because the story goes does go on, um, leading all the way up to Jesus. And so that they go through and they take the tabernacle that they build, which I have a photo of that, or it's a picture. I found one online. So you might remember some of this, but it was God's very specific instructions to build essentially like a tent They had tech, you know, I want the, this fabric. I want these gold pieces. I want this. All these different pieces, the Ark of the Covenant, the... The, there's the, the washing basin, and there's a, temple, there's a table of bread, and the candle, all the things. Like, and they all mean different parts of worship, and they're about ways for us to relate to God. And God gives a lot of instruction in Leviticus about different aspects of this and how to use it. And it's us coming to him in a process of coming to him and giving him the worth that he deserves. And then God lets his presence fall on this place, meaning his actual presence. What, you know, And we see in this story a lot of talk about God's presence, which I am going to get to in a second, where Moses talks to him face to face and then immediately says, I want to see your glory and can't see him face to face, so it can get confusing. But what I'm talking about is the presence of God being with him in the wilderness. And when God's presence moves, they move with it. And that's how you will navigate your life as a Christ-following person. That's it. And then the funny, So again, the funny thing about the story is then... They take the tent, they make the tabernacle, fast forward in the Bible, and then they build it into a stone temple. And the first one is done by Solomon, David, or David's son. And then they build this exact same thing, but in a stone version that's like bigger. And then they, you know, they, they come in and they tear it down, and then they rebuild it again, and the whole thing, all leading up to when Jesus shows up, and he says, hey, you know this whole thing? That's me. And, and that didn't go over well, you know, with the surrounding authorities. And then Jesus, uh, as we talked about last week, he takes all of this, um, all of the sin of the world, all of this worship stuff, all of this separation from God, and takes it with him, and it's all put to death on the cross. And his blood now becomes like the Passover lamb's blood, and like the sacrificial lamb's blood, and he offers the forgiveness of sin for anyone who would call on his name. And weirdest thing happens because you see in this instructions, God's like, I want this thing here with this curtain around it, and I want this thing here with this curtain around it, and I want all these things, and then. They make it in the temple. And then Jesus dies on the cross. And that curtain tears itself. It tears itself. So they go in. They even depicted this pretty well, I think, in that Passion of the Christ movie. where They go, what was that? Because there's an earthquake. And then the veil is torn into this holiest place. And it's a statement from God that what Jesus has done has now made this the holy of holies available to anyone through his name which it gets even crazier so not only is jesus this ultimate tabernacle now you see in the book of acts it keeps going and he's like don't leave jesus said this we read this last week look i've done it all but i'm sending my holy spirit to empower you to do the things you, to tell everybody this whole thing that we just did don't leave until it comes He didn't go, it'll be all right, we'll figure it out. He said, don't leave until it comes. Don't leave until it comes. And then they don't, and then it does come. And then you see like in Acts 2 when they go out, and then the whole story of Acts is people getting used to realizing that now, somehow, the miracle of God, through what Jesus did, not only was Jesus this, now each and every one of us can be this. And it does not make sense at all. If you remember last week when... Jesus was resurrected, and they, the women come from the tomb, and they go, hey, he's not dead. And it says the apostles, not like some guys, like Peter and the ones that this is, this is the church that's starting. They go, that sounds like nonsense. Quote from the Bible, they didn't believe the women because their words sounded like nonsense. Because it sounds like nonsense, especially if you have any idea of what I'm talking about here. The presence of God so Powerful Moses, whose face was lighting up, can't go in there anymore. You read that at the end. He's like, I can't even go in there or I might die. You know, And, and now he's like, I can send that power in each and every one of you. And it doesn't make sense and it, because you don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You aren't good enough. Remember the whole thing about like, if I'm good enough, it's like this is not how the world works. It's how we think it works, but it isn't how it actually works. We don't deserve it. We deserve nothing but God's wrath, but he gives us this because he loves us back to this relational language again. And he promises that ultimately we will get there with him where the city and the images in Revelation, which are again pictures of what ultimate reality will be like with a new heaven and new earth, where there's no more like darkness at all and there's there's no more weeping and crying and pain and there's no need for a temple anymore just because God is among us. Like the whole thing is transformed back into what God really wants it to be. We're going to get there, but we're not there yet. So we don't have to pretend like we are. We live in the wilderness. Jesus knows that. And he's given us his presence with us. So this is leading to the second main point. This one might offend. I hope it doesn't, unless you need to be offended. Um, It's true. (laughs) I mean, sometimes you got to get a... When you think about... We're going to talk about encountering God here. And every time people encounter God, it doesn't always go the same way. Like, when you think blind Bartimaeus, hey, there's a guy who we've, I've heard there's a guy healing blind people, and he's like, matters to me as a blind guy, and they go, yeah, he's leaving. He's like, well, I'm going to shout out, because I think, you know, I need to at least clear this up, you know, and he does. He goes expecting. He's like, dude, help me out, and he does. You know, Paul at the time, Saul is killing Christian people because they're bad. He's like, these people are ruining everything. I've got letters to allow me to arrest them because they're bad. And they need to be stopped because they're bad. And I'm sure of it. I'm not only well plugged in, I'm smart and intelligent and able to get things done to the point that I have letters giving me the right to arrest these people, probably to be killed, and I'm going to go deal with it. And then he runs into Jesus. And he's like, like, uh... Who are, and Jesus is like, why are you persecuting me? And, and he's like, who are you again? You know? And he's like, I'm Jesus. And Je- Paul goes, ah, crap. You know. <laughs> Paul coincidentally ends up being blinded for a few days because he thought he had it all figured out and he found out he was wrong. So when I say, hey, unless you need to be offended, some of you might need to be if you're blinded by what you know or you think you know. You need... To encounter the presence of God, this is the second main point. And you see this when Moses says, "Show me your glory." This is the prayer. This is the second thing that we need to address, and we need to say this very clearly. You need to encounter. Go. To, do I have? I don't have a main point too. Okay. Um, go to something other than this. Oh, that was my smart Alec. <laughs> Yeah, well, if you're, uh, if uh, I was saying that if we follow all the instructions, you know, keeping up appearances and all, you can look a lot like a Christian on the outside, but without the presence of God, you're just a tent. So I was saying, don't be just a tent. That was supposed to come later, but we'll leave it up. Don't be just a tent. That's really a better way to say this. This, this thing is essential for a believer to actually encounter God, encounter almighty God, to actually encounter him, to actually know him. That you can do this. You need to understand that this is a real thing. And I do want to say some clear things. Uh, How we encounter God and what happens with that and all that kind of... It's not like a measuring stick of how much you're blessed in the sense of, you know, ways we like to claim things to each other. It's also not a... um, It's not like a warrant to just seek out positive emotional experiences all the time as if that's what encountering God always means. So we might call these mountaintop experiences. You need these in your life. So I am not, I am clearly and uh, and very, very clearly saying, you need, if you're going to define encountering God as a mountaintop experience, I would, that you need these in your life. Every single person needs them in your life to follow God. It's necessary, it's required, okay? And I need to tell you that honestly because otherwise, why would you listen to anything I'm saying? I could convince you just like Paul was convinced, but you don't know him. You have to actually know him. But it's also not like inviting you into a place where, in a twisted way, it's like, I'm going to just pretend like I already live in the promised land and everything's great all the time. And if it's not great all the time, then I must be doing something wrong and that... I'm not experiencing God's blessing or something. You see how twisted this gets in your head pretty quickly? Or I'm not having a good time. That must mean that I've not encountered God or God's not with me or I'm doing something. Or that things aren't working out the way I wanted them to work out. So it must be that, you know, these kinds of things. Or that this other person... It seems to need to, or I need to perform for this other person. Like, I can't be honest with you about the real troubles in my life, because if I do, you'll think that I don't know God, so I'll just lie and tell you everything's fine. And that's how we'll live at church. Uh, This is not how it's supposed to be. I've talked with John extensively about this. It's like, why do we pretend like, you know, it Be honest, we're in the wilderness, but we're with God. Two things at the same time. So I don't want it to turn into like a, who's had the biggest encounter? Because <laughs> it happens, and I've seen it, and it's kind of dumb. And then people start lying. That's the other problem, you know. So am I talking about like to get saved? Yeah, I kind of am. You need to meet God. And then am I talking about living a Christian life, like, to actually do that? I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about, like, the empowerment that comes through the Holy Spirit. We don't need to get too technical. Like, you know, Peter, we, we heard, like, we were talking about, like, the gap of time between Peter uh, seeing Jesus with his own eyes ascend to heaven and whatever that means in kind of a dimensional way, then the gap of time before he's empowered by the Holy Spirit he obviously believed Jesus had died and rose again. He was literally there. So when you were like, well, what was he saved?" It's like, don't get hung up on stuff. But the story didn't end there. He needed the Holy Spirit in his life. And so, yes, to both. But then also, like, Jesus gives some pretty impossible commandments. Like, you see, like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors as yourself. You might go, that sounds, yeah, pretty impossible, but at least on this side of, like, doable, like, yeah, I should probably love God, and yeah, I should probably love neighbors, and yeah, okay, you know, yes. And then he's like, love your enemies. Not like, that's not like the advanced class. That's the, are you following Jesus or not? You have to love your enemies. And you're like, well, now you've crossed from, like, that, this side to, like, the impossible side. Like, I can't do that. And that that's not even, like... <laughs> If you do it in this day and age, it's not even looked on as like a virtue. Like it's looked on as like you're you're a stupid person or something like that. And Jesus is saying, this is how people who follow me live. And we'd go, I can't do that. He goes, I know. That's why I said don't leave until the power, like the Holy Spirit comes on you. Because you can't. I can do it through you. And that's what I want to be with you in the wilderness. There we are. I found this to be, potentially offensive because you might go, well, I don't know if I've ever had an experience like this. I don't know if you have either. But I don't want you to too narrowly define it. Because when you look throughout the Bible, especially, like, look at how Jesus interacts with people. There's a myriad of different types of encounters. Okay? Moses didn't expect that God, Yahweh God, the creator God of the universe, would be talking to him in a burning bush. But he did. A lot of this just has to do with us with surrendering. Like, again, you go all the way back to that fall I told you about where we choose sin. The whole thing was about us being like God. And we seem to, like, forget that over and over again. You know, you're not moving in the box I made for you, God. And he's like, that's kind of the point, you know. You're not in charge. I am. But don't get hung up on specific feelings and specific things. But you do need to encounter him. And, And does that mean that everything that you think is God, is God, no. It doesn't mean that. Oftentimes you'll think God told you something and you will be wrong. Or you'll think you encounter God and it's not true. You know? And it's just like we say about um, our emotions can lie to us, our minds can lie to us, our experiences can lie to us. I know a lot of people, well, not a lot, that's, that's an exaggeration. I have met plenty of people in my life that encounter God for the first time while they were on drugs. And three-quarters of what they said sounded really awesome and one quarter of it was like, that might have been the drugs. <laughs> I'm okay with that. God used it, but I don't have to go, well, it's one or the other. I'm like, no, it's not. Our brains are complicated that way. Or maybe you're just remembering wrong. My point is, that's why we have the Bible. The most basic, most obvious, most regular way that God will speak to you and counter you is through his word. And he will never do anything that contradicts that. But it takes a lifetime in the body of Christ to help you even see that sort of stuff. You know what I mean? But what you need to take away from Moses' prayer is it's okay to ask. We should ask. We should be seeking that. And you can't know unless you know. And how important this is in a believer's life, uh, it, it's, I've been thinking about this for a couple weeks. I've talked about it with a couple of, a couple of people And nobody I've talked to that's a pastor can think of any Christian person in their life that hasn't had an experience like this. And I'm like, well, then why don't we talk like this? You know, you might say, well, when did you meet Jesus? And I guess that kind of does mean the same thing. But uh, I'm not saying when did you mentally assent to a, a list of things about God, knowing about him like the demons do. I'm saying when did you start to know him, you know? Or, when, you know, have you met him? And have you met him again? Like, do you meet him again? You know, I think about Asbury again. I put that photo up from that. Like, why did we go up there? I was thinking, like, why did I go to Asbury when that revival thing was going on? And I'd go, I don't really know the answer to that other than I wanted to, 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 to see God again or to, to encounter him again. Encounter is the word. I wanted to encounter him again. And did I see a vision? No. Did I, you know, I didn't encounter anything in the, world, in the worldly sense that was impressive at all. But God, I think, changed me somehow on the inside in ways that only he can do, like him talking through a burning bush. I don't have to get hung up on the technicalities of it, but it was needed. But it's needed for every single one of us, not so that we only live in these mountaintop points, because when you go from a mountain down into a valley back up to another mountain, and, like, if you even pay attention to mountains, like Jason Upton used to say all the time, like, there's a point in the mountaintop where the trees stop existing. Like, there's no more life up there. Like, you can't live up there. Like, all the life happens down in the valley. You know, in the deepest part of the valley is where the river is anyway. You know what I So, like, I don't want to get too, don't push the metaphor too far. But my point is, our lives are going to be, you see what I'm saying? Our lives are going to be like this. But you need these mountain topics. We don't need to go like, well, I know some emotionally weak people need this, but I'm fine. And just try to grit and bear it. That's not how it's supposed to be. You need these to get through the valleys of the shadow. Like, you're like, yeah, but. Because there's going to be days, like when we just read about tomorrow worrying about itself. There's going to be days you get up and you go, Gosh. This is terrible. I don't sense God's presence at all, and it's okay to admit that too. Because Jesus Himself said, "Hang on the cross, God, why have you forsaken me?" Him being God can't be fors- forsaken per se, but His experience mirrors what ours is of not seeing the, or feeling or knowing the presence of God in that moment. And He was doing exactly what it was to do, and He was the most holy thing that you know, whatever you get the point. So, we all need this. But I was just reading this book. Um, it's a long book. Uh, about Martin Luther King's life because I just wanted to know more about it, and um, there was a story I knew, but it just stuck out to me in this book because the book is done, I think, to be sort of like a reference book because it's just like and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then went over here and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. Then this happened. So in one sense, it's, it's you got to read, it, you got to read it. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> there's parts where I'm like I can't remember. There's like hundred names you just mentioned. I can't, you know. But it chronicles the whole thing from when he starts in Montgomery. Until when he gets shot, and then it's over. The book's over. And it's just like the list of... And so this man, he's a young man at the time. Some of us didn't get that memo either. Dude's like 27 or 28. And this thing happens when the bus is in Montgomery. Who, we're in a town he just moved to like a year before, and he's pastor of a church there, not a big one, well, a church. And they say, this is enough of this we're going to boycott these buses until these people listen to us. And we're going to have to do it organized or it's not going to work. So let's get organized. So they start getting organized, and they invite him to come. And then he seems to be able to put to words what other people can't. So they go, why don't you run this? And he's like, no. Like, what are you talking? I don't, I'm not even from here. Like, I'm from, out of, I, I'm from Atlanta. I don't, or, you know, I'm not from here at all. And I'm young, and these other guys have been doing stuff like this for a while. Why am I in charge? They're like, everybody listens to you. And he goes from being, you know, some just random guy to the person we think of as Martin Luther King in a very short period of time. Like, he goes from that to, like, the cover of Time magazine in, like, months or something like that, you know? And the whole time he's kind of like, I didn't really ask for this. I wasn't really planning on doing this. But then he would reflect and say but I can't see how we would do anything else. It's like he almost felt, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but almost like trapped, like God has made me to do this, and I can't even really figure out why. But all of a sudden, it gets really serious. So they're doing something important, and they're trying to figure it out, and they don't even even really know what they're doing, and they don't even always agree on why. Because doing the right thing in a complicated situation isn't always obvious. You know, you want to look back and be like, well, I know what I would have done. You don't. I recommend reading this book because it's detailed enough that you'd get there and you go, then they had to sit as a group and decide in this really complicated situation what action to take. And you can stop and go, I have no idea what I would have done. You know what I mean? And it's kind of humbling and helpful to do that kind of thing. All and This is a long prologue to this. The point is, it started getting serious. And people's houses started getting bombed. And people started getting threatened. And they started getting shot at. And they would get arrested for nothing because they were giving each other rides and cars to avoid using the buses. So the police would just pull people over and ma- for made-up reasons and arrest them for a while. And they just knew that was going to happen, so they were like, well, let's, let's deal with it. But all of a sudden, it kind of hit, hit him. He had had too much of that all at once. They'd shot at somebody. Another person, person had been bombed, and then there had been a lot of threats. And then he gets a call. He gets home one night totally, totally uh, worn out. He'd been in jail like the day before And everybody's asking him, "What do we do?" And he's like, "What?" You know what I mean? So so the pressure the man is under is insane. And then he gets home to go to bed; his family's already asleep. And the phone rings, and this guy tells him, "We're going to kill you, or kill your whole family, or both, whatever." You know, bye. And they've gotten a lot of calls like this, but for some reason, on this day, he was like, "I can't take any more of this." So he sat down, put up—I put up this photo because they've turned this place into a museum. This is the house that he had. He sits down at this kitchen table, and I'm assuming it's close to what it was like even then. So it's not any, any place. I mean, now we look at it and go, well, that's Martin Luther King, and that's Martin Luther King's kitchen. It wasn't then. He was just a guy doing what God wanted him to do, just like any other one of us could have been. You know, yes, you're probably not as good at speeches as Martin Luther King, but you have the capacity inside of you to do the same sort of thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? You don't have to get a Nobel Prize or be on Time Magazine to be impactful for God, okay? So don't, don't hear this the wrong way. But I'm using him as an example because he prays to God and says, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't know why I'm doing this. I mean, it seems like it's the right thing to do. I feel like you're telling me to stand up for truth and justice and do the right thing, but when I, it's not working out. This isn't what I planned on doing. And he said, I don't think I'm going to do it anymore unless you can tell me something this is like a desperate man praying, and he hears a voice tell him, you, I want you to stand up for truth, and I want you to stand up for justice, and I want you to do this, and I will never leave you alone. No, never alone. No, never alone in this whole thing. And then from that moment on, something was different. Now, we can turn that into like, wow, that's a pretty, pretty awesome Christian story right there, right? You know? And then we could use that. The rest of the time we talk about him, he's like, well, you know, God and all, you know. And there's a lot of good and bad things that happen throughout the rest of the book. This is what stuck with me about it. Not that that story. I'd actually heard that story before because that's the kind of guidepost type Christian story we like to grab onto, right? Like, well, we as Christian people can, you know, borrow some social capital from somebody like Martin Luther King or whatever, you know. We're talking about a desperate man who's dealing with the fact that if I do what my faith requires of me, these people might kill my family, that's intense, but God speaks to him, and every time, this is what stuck with me about this, he hit a bunch of walls throughout the rest of his time till he ultimately died, and even days before he died, chronicled in this book, he, from his own mouth, why are you still doing this, Dr. King? And he says, well, you know what? God told me he wouldn't leave me alone, <laughs> He didn't go, well, you know, future. and I mean, there's obviously lots of reasons why they were doing it. He's standing for truth and justice. But for him to get through it all, he would call back to this encounter he had with the Spirit of God. And I'm not, like, Christianizing this or trying to, you know, steal this for a sermon. You can read the book. It's like, this happens early on, and then on page, like, 100, he references it. On page, like, 150, he references it. And he keeps referencing it. And he preached on it. You can find it. He's like, God told me this. And... It dawned on me, I was like, so all you secular people that want to grab a guy like this and go, see, this is what humanity can accomplish. I'd be like, it seems like a a major piece of the fuel of this man's ability to endure all of this horrible stuff is a promise from God that he told him in what might be argued as a highly subjective experience. So is he crazy. I would argue no. I think God met him that night and told him something. And he said, all right then. And that was it. And it was still hard. He was still in the wilderness, but he knew God was with him. And so that changed everything and allowed for the rest to happen. And it just seems, but you have to taste and see. This is the thing I was thinking about Then uh, Psalm 34. You see this taste and see that the Lord is good. And out of the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole thing. James and I met for lunch the other day at a restaurant that he had told me about. You're downtown. It's called Arepa, please. I have, a, I have a picture of this. And they sell these awesome sandwiches, you know. James had told me about it. We talked about going. It sounded awesome. If you had said, have you heard of this place? I would have said, yes. And if you said, is it good? I would go, I hear it is. And do you know where it is? Well, you, we can Google it. But yes, in a sense, yes. I know where it is. I know all about it. I know it's good. James says it's good. Everything is good. Have you had it? No. Is there a difference between those two things? Yes. Is all the information I could have given you before accurate, assuming James's testimony is accurate? Yes. But did I know what it tasted like? No. That's important. Because now I'd go, that's a really good place y'all need to go, but you aren't gonna know what it tastes like until you go. Do you hear what I'm saying here? You have to actually taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you read Psalm 34 in context, there's a lot more to it because it's showing you how, how in different ways he is good. All right, I'm going to end. Um, I already talked about all this stuff. So how do we do this? Moses says to God, show me your glory. Kayla, you can come up whenever you're ready. Jesus says this in Matthew 7. We just read Matthew 6. This is in Matthew 7. This is still Sermon on the Mount stuff. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone that, who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open. Moses praying, show me your glory, is equivalent to him asking, seeking, and knocking for, for the presence of God. And as created beings, it's part of our existence. We cry out, like, God, I need you to show me your glory. And here's what that means. It means, yes, I want to actually encounter the living God, which is, could sound presumptuous, But you're surrendering 100% of the way. All while knowing that everything that you think might be God isn't always. That's what other people are involved in, helping you sort through that with God's word and everything like that. While knowing that this is an essential part of being a Christian person. And you're not going to make it through the valleys without it. I just know it's true. You're not going to do it. And God says, all right and immediately starts giving them instructions on a tabernacle, which could seem odd at first. Like, why jump from, like, we got it. The cloud, boom. Glowing faces, we're good. We don't need any of this other stuff. And he's like, no, you need it, because it's going to be a minute. Mark Sayers in this book, which we're going to read as part of our Form and Fire book club this summer, talks about this in the last chapter, where the title form and fire I stole from. <laughs> and I'm going to read this to you because um, because it gets at what we need because God sees here. You can't live without his presence. I'll read this East Stanley Jones quote first. East Stanley Jones missionary to India in the early part of the 20th century. When mankind comes into vital contact with Christ, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, I made this. I didn't proofread this, so just make <laughs> if it doesn't line up. This one should be right. When mankind comes into vital contact with Christ, God consciousness becomes real and living. God becomes an intimate reality and clearly present in the heart. Not just known about, but known. Known. I know what it tastes like now. And clearly present in the heart. We find God through Christ. We don't just hope for the experience. We actually find God. And here's what Mark Sayer says. The church and followers of Jesus are called to be temples or tabernacles. When I say temples, here hear tabernacle. We just, you know. Temples are built around form and fire. Their forms direct our patterns of worship and our hearts toward God, reshaping true worshipers in God's image. Temples are also places of fire where fire is used to consume sacrifices, cleansing and purifying us. In the scriptures, fire also symbolizes God's presence and power. From ancient Israel, the temple, when functioning as God's intended as God intended it, enabled Israel to be close to her neighbors. That's the world there. But gave them formational distance. It also gave them worshipping distance as they centered their lives around God's purifying, empowering presence. Because like God said, if you, I'm, I'm again I'll show you part of my glory, but if I show all of it to you, you'll die. As we learned, well, we didn't learn in chapter 8 yet, Um, we are human temples. The church is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is also now the temple. His way is the form. His presence and spirit is the fire. Healthy biblical renewal is like a bird with two wings, form and fire. We need His fire to come, His empowering presence to do what human strength cannot we need that, not want or, you know. We need His fire to come to cleanse us and purify us, accelerate our ministry and mission. We need His fire to smash strongholds and to take spiritual ground for the kingdom. Yet we also need His form to shape us. We need holy patterns to remake us in Christ-likeness, like Moses did as God commanded, did as God commanded did as God commanded. Many Christian traditions are strong on forms. Others are all about chasing fire. The fact of the secularist challenge, which means non Christian, a whole new generation of young Christians is seeking a breakthrough in God's presence and power through passionate worship, prayer, and mission. Others aware of the corrosive influence of our contemporary individualism are integrating and pursuing the patterns that have shaped and sustained the church for millennia however those pursuing, pursuing fire without form in a culturally obsessed in a culture obs- sorry however those p- pursuing fire without form in a culture obsessed with the spectacular feelings and the instantaneous can find themselves being carried away with sheer human enthusiasm or disillusioned when God's timetable doesn't align with theirs. So that's if you're just seeking the experiences. And those committed to formational patterns over time may find such forms beneficial for their individual shaping, yet impotent for kingdom breakthrough. The patterns can become emptied of their meaning, forms without fire giving into theology and faith of drudgery and defeat. Tim Keller, while affirming the revital I'm going to keep reading. While affirming the revitalization of revivalism has brought to the Church of the West notes that it... N- brought to the Church of the West notes that it needs... that. Sorry, I don't read out, well, out loud as well. Tim Keller notes that it needs forms that guide us into consistent discipleship at a time when most Christians were caught in cultural Christianity and dead orthodoxy. Revivalism rightly reemphasized the importance of our individual relationship with God, of our hearts being changed by the Holy Spirit. However, Keller notes that this emphasis of revivalism also has contributed to contemporary forms of Christianity found across the West, where individuals seek out the fire of individual experience, but shun the formational practice of the gathered Christian church. Keller advocates for what he calls ecclesial revivalism, in which the energy Of revivalism moves us into the formational context of the church. And then he keeps going on the skip for now. So the point being is, we need each other to do this. The book, the story of Exodus, might come on up here. The story of Exodus ends as the people of God in the wilderness, but with God. And yes, yes, metaphorically and ultimately, you can hear this as an individual. Yes, God with you in the wilderness, of course. And yes, like Martin Luther King, of course, I was saying all that. But really, the best picture is us as. The group is the, te- the tabernacle. And I asked Mike to come up and pray for this because I think that we need to be corporately asking for God to send his presence among us for my life, for Mike's life, and for all, all of our lives together and how that works in the relational language and all that kind of thing, which does lead to life change and the ability to love terrible people because that's what we're called to do. And Mike, I wanted him to share just a minute, because they were praying this last night, and then I want him to just pray for us. Come on up here. And uh, do what you need to do. Yeah.
2: So it was February 17th, 1998. little chapel on the other side of the lake and a small college in the middle of Georgia where I had an encounter with God, and I gave my life to God. And... Nothing has been the same since. And it wasn't a motivational speaker. It wasn't somebody talking about how to live a good life. It was somebody telling me that Jesus has not come to make bad people good. He's come to make dead people alive. And I was dead. And so... I answered the call that night, and I gave my life to God. And I became alive in that moment. I encountered God. And we have a funny thing we do at our house. You know, sometimes you go to the refrigerator, you open it, and you just kind of stare into it. You're looking for something. Same with the pantry. So we say, he's not in there. And we say it all the time to each other. He's not in there. And my kids at first looked at me, what are you talking about? You're looking for Jesus, aren't you? He's not in there. So we do that all the time. It's kind of just a funny thing that we do, but we're all searching. Whether we know it or not, we're all searching for an encounter with Jesus. You know, we've got, my son came back from summer camp, summer ago and started inviting his friends to come over to our house. And this was a year ago and and right now, every other week and on Saturday night, our house is filled with young people. We're talking about 50, 60 kids that come and just worship the Lord, get into small groups and they come for an encounter. And they come from all different churches all over the city. And one of them I was talking to a young man last night and he goes he goes I don't understand why the world would want to do anything other than this right here and what he was talking about was an encounter he was having with the experience of the love of God And it floored me and these kids are these kids are searching and when they find the love of God they come in mass. And so. Jesus said. It was, it, it's to your advantage that I go away. So I can send the helper. And so I just want to pray into an outpouring. For the Holy Spirit to just. Encounter us. Yeah let's stand up. It says in James 4, 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It says in Acts that he arranged the boundary lines of nations in the hopes that men would grope for him, that they would find him. How much more has he arranged the boundary lines of your life and your heart so that you would grope for him, so that you would find him? though he is not far off. Father, hallelujah. Lord, we love that you initiated this divine romance. You started this and you invited us into it. Even now you're calling us to yourself you are calling us to encounter you, to walk with you, to hear your voice, to follow after you. Jesus, we cannot do this without you. We just ask you right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, just to come, Lord. Come, Jesus. I stand at the door and knock, he says. If anyone hears my voice, I will come and sup with him. Jesus, we want to be with you where you are. We want to feel your presence. say yes, just break in, Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit. We want to love what you love. We want to desire what you desire, that our ways would look like yours, that we would long for what you long for, that it would be more than just a confession, but it would be walked out. We want our hearts near you. We want truth in the inwardmost parts. We don't want to go without you. We want your presence with us. Come, Holy Spirit. I just, I challenge each and every one of you just to, in your own way, draw near to Him. The promise is that when you draw near, he will draw near to you. Whether that's an encounter in his word, an encounter in a conversation in your car, just practice drawing near and learn how to run to him and not from him when you stumble. Learn how to run to him and not from him when you stumble and to refuse to go without him. He wants to be with you. Come, Holy Spirit. Unlock our hearts. We want to be clothed with your righteousness. I don't want to pretend, Lord. I don't want to pretend anymore. We need you, we need your presence. We say no to the posturing and the pretension. We say no to the fig leaf. We want to be real. Help us to be real. We want to be real. And we just say yes. We say yes. Come, Holy Spirit. live and move and have our being in you and you alone there is no life outside of you we love you Jesus come Holy Spirit I feel like he's, I feel like he's speaking to you each and every one of you. I feel like he's revealing areas of your life that he wants in. I know there's areas in my life he wants in. I've shut the door for so long in those areas. Shame, fear. Ah, he wants in. He wants all of it. perfect love it's the perfect love that casts out all fear if any of you wants to be prayed over we're just going to invite you to come forward even right now just come forward there's those here that will pray for you if you want to be the one that just says, look, I'm drawing near. I want an encounter. It doesn't have to happen here. It can happen anywhere. But sometimes we just need to take a step. Sometimes we just need to say, you know, I don't care what people think anymore. So as Caleb worships, just come if you feel led just ask him he might surprise you we need an encounter continual encounter with him i'm watching these young people gather at my house and it has nothing to do with me or my house it's the holy spirit drawing and then as these as these kids respond he responds back with his presence And with life, he's moving, guys. He is moving. You can't think that it cannot start with you, just in your own house with your own mind and your own heart. It doesn't have to be at Asbury. It doesn't have to be on Sunday morning. He wants to encounter you every day, wherever you're at. Jesus prayed to his father. He said that they would be with me. Ah, oh, he loves to be with us. He doesn't expect us to know how to do it. He just expects us to say yes. That's all He wants, just to say yes. Praise you, Father.
0: I think that we need to... um We need to work together to break something. Um, I don't know if it's purely emotional, behavioral or spiritual or a combination, it doesn't really matter to me. I think that there's some sort of group held belief that If I do anything, like take an action, like, for example, in this context, come forward for one of the prayer team people to pray for me, then it means something that I don't think it means at all, or it carries with it some sort of weight, like what I see is God offering something incredibly powerful, because when I say about encountering God, I don't mean once. I mean, we need it. And one of the main points in the book of Acts is the way God encounters people is by the instruction of laying on of hands from one person to another. Like, that's an important way that it's done. And he's standing there, and he's like, I want to do this. But everybody's like, right at the edge, but I don't want to be embarrassed when literally nobody cares. (laughs) Like, does anyone care? Can I, can I get, a, can I get a, a show of hands for how much anyone cares? Now, can I get another show of hands of how much of us need to encounter God? And I'm on that. So this, the math isn't adding up. You see what I'm saying here, guys? So <laughs> I'm just going to, I want you to break this with me. They're going to play this song. I'm going to go ahead and pray. and I'm going to dismiss us. And then I'm going to step down here, and then I'm going to have Mike pray for me. Because I need prayer for this too. I actually had Mike pray for me this on Wednesday. This is not like just performance, just so you know, you know. But you need to do this because the enemy loves you to get right to the edge and then be like, Don't worry, it'll be the same when you're at home. And then it isn't. <laughs> and we need to break through it for the sake, not just of you, but for everybody else. Because nobody cares. It's a lie nobody cares. I don't care. Nobody cares. So let's take an action on this. You know, Jesus hung on a cross for us. We can at least come down and receive a free gift of his presence, my God. So Lord, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us. And as we draw near to you, that you would draw near to us. We pray that you would bless the children that have been meeting in Maranatha kids, Lord, and that you would encounter them as well, even those that are on the playground right now, Lord, that you would encounter them with your spirit and that joy would fill this place and that it would be a place of celebration. Like we read, you give joy, and beauty and joy instead of ashes and despair. As we go from this place, Lord, let us go forth into the wilderness, but with your presence. In Jesus' name, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, lift up his countenance towards you, give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. And that will conclude our service. If you want to be prayed for, come down here and get prayed for, and we'll stay as long as we need to. And if you're online at home, pray for each other or something, and uh, that will conclude the service. And if you have kids, go get your kids. Maybe bring them back in, and we'll pray for them as well. So, amen.